You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of Yahweh that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to Yahweh in all your dwelling places. These are the appointed feasts of Yahweh, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at twilight, is Yahweh's Passover. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to Yahweh. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall present a food offering to Yahweh for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the firstfruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before Yahweh, so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath the priest shall wave it. And on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, a year old, without blemish, as a burnt offering to Yahweh. And the grain offering with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to Yahweh with a pleasing aroma. And the drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hin. And you shall eat neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh, until this same day, until you have brought the offering of your God. It is a statute forever, throughout your generations, in all your dwellings. You shall count seven full weeks, from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count fifty days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to Yahweh. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be of fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven as firstfruits to Yahweh. And you shall present with the bread seven lambs a year old without blemish, and one bull from the herd, and two rams. They shall be a burnt offering to Yahweh, with their grain offering and their drink offerings, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to Yahweh. And you shall offer one male goat for a sin offering, and two male lambs a year old as a sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before Yahweh with the two lambs. They shall be holy to Yahweh for the priest. And you shall make a proclamation on the same day. You shall hold a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. It is a statute forever in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, 
nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am Yahweh your God. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall present a food offering to Yahweh. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Now on the tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to Yahweh. And you shall not do any work on that very day, for it is a day of atonement, to make atonement for you before Yahweh your God. For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people. And whoever does any work on that very day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall not do any work. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict yourselves. On the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening, from evening to evening, shall you keep your Sabbath. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of this seventh month, and for seven days, is the feast of booths to Yahweh. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to Yahweh. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to Yahweh. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. These are the appointed feasts of Yahweh, which you shall proclaim as times of holy convocation, for presenting to Yahweh food offerings, burnt offerings, and grain offerings, sacrifices, and drink offerings, each on its proper day, besides Yahweh's Sabbaths, and besides your gifts, and besides all your vow offerings, and besides all your freewill offerings, which you give to Yahweh. On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of Yahweh seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest, and on the eighth day shall be a solemn rest, and you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before Yahweh your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to Yahweh for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am Yahweh your God. Thus Moses declared to the people of Israel, the appointed feasts of Yahweh. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 613 of this podcast. Today is Sunday, May 7th, 2023, and that was Leviticus chapter 23 
talking about feasts and the Sabbath and Passover and what should be done and when these things should take place in the calendar. And you see a recurring theme where you're not supposed to do ordinary work on several of these occasions. You're supposed to rest and you're supposed to serve God and you're supposed to meditate really on the goodness of God. If you are an Israelite and you are getting this from Moses, who is giving this from God. But, you know, it's an interesting passage to read while thinking about a conversation I just had with my wife, Lauren. She's got a birthday coming up at the end of this week. And we got out yesterday the very generous and very sweet Joel Pringle offered to hang out with the younger kids, the older boys, the four older boys. They ended up going and helping the Teals do some yard work. And then that basically left Lauren and I between those two (laughs) events or uh, occupations for our eight kids that left us free to get up to Estes Park and to celebrate a little bit just by ourselves, have a day date or an afternoon date and have some dinner. We had a lovely dinner at Bird and Jim before hitting up Cliffhanger Used Books. More on that here in a minute. But as we're having this conversation, we're talking about Star Wars Day. And we've been talking a little bit this past week about Star Wars Day and that being our son Daniel's birthday. He just turned 12. Lauren was telling me about a friend of ours who does not celebrate Mother's Day. She's got several children, but she doesn't celebrate Mother's Day. And I asked, well, why is that? You know, she's a mother and you would think she would lean into this celebration of her role in the family, her role in society. And Lauren's simple explanation was uh, she doesn't celebrate holidays that are made up, (laughs) that are not real holidays, which, (laughs) you know, knowing this friend of ours, I... I'm not super shocked that that would be a uh, rationale. Uh, I said, well, she probably doesn't celebrate Star Wars Day either, huh? And she says, yeah, no, no, I don't think she does. But, you know, it is funny when we look at the calendar. I very often am surprised at holidays creeping up and somebody will just say, oh, yeah, did you know we're off this coming Monday? And just like that, I'll find out that we do have a holiday coming up. A lot of the holidays that are on the calendar here in the U.S., I just kind of scratch my head about also, okay, why is that a holiday? I mean, sure, we should be intentional in maybe thinking about that event or that category of people, I suppose, but do we need to dedicate a whole day to that? And maybe especially when you look at Leviticus 23, and you see God telling Moses to tell the people, I want you to observe these holy days or these feasts during the course of the year. It's interesting to realize what we make into holidays versus what God wanted Israel to make into holidays. And also how we observe our holidays versus how Israel observed their holidays. It's interesting, I think, to see what's valued and 
what is prioritized and also what the effect would be. I mean, what is the effect of having Star Wars Day, for instance, that we think about Star Wars and remember to keep it in our heart always, that we would watch Star Wars and appreciate the brilliance that is George Lucas. I mean, what, what really is the big idea? There's a trivial quality to it. And even for that matter, Labor Day. I mean, we talked about May Day here in a couple of episodes since May 1st. May Day in several countries around the world is a day for celebrating workers and the labor movement and unions and workers of the world unite is what the communists would say. And here in the U.S., we have Labor Day in September because Grover Grover Cleveland was not so hot on the associating the United States with socialism. He was very concerned about socialism creeping into America and our political process and our national consciousness. But either way, whether you put Labor Day in September or you have it in May, on May 1st, when the commies are celebrating it, either way, do we really need to have a day dedicated to labor? And what's the big idea there? You know, it's It is, again, a study in contrasts to see God telling Israel, here are the feasts I want you to celebrate. Here are the holidays, the holy days I want you to celebrate throughout your generations. And here's how I want you to celebrate them. Here's when I want you to celebrate them. Here's why I want you to celebrate them. And again and again, we see God saying, don't do any work on these days. And really emphasizing that and being very stern about it. And some will say, well, this is for our sake. God tells us to rest because we need to rest. And here are all the health benefits of resting. And I've seen this with fasting as well. Our youth group recently went through fasting as a spiritual discipline, an examination of that on Wednesday nights as part of a series this year going through various spiritual disciplines. But when I was trying to research and prepare to give my talk on fasting, one of the things that I saw several times, even from Christians talking about a biblical view of fasting, a healthy view of fasting, Christians again and again would highlight the health benefits, the physical benefits of fasting. And they would say, well, you know, this happens to your metabolism and this happens to your mental clarity, and this happens to this, this, and this, and you'll be leaner, and you won't have as much in the way of fat storage, and so you'll be trim and more physically energetic and mentally sharp. And is that, first and foremost, the reason that God gives for why we should fast or why we should feast, on the other hand, right? So so here on both ends, when Our expression of something similar, having holidays, which if you break that down etymologically, is just holy days, is our intention, is our expression at all about God in the vast majority of cases where our holidays are concerned? Or is it the case that many of us work very hard on the holidays that we celebrate? We work very hard to make sure that everything is prepared and nice and we get the house clean and we cook and decorate and 
invite people over and go to parties and throw parties. And depending on the holiday, we set off fireworks, give gifts. For what? And who are we celebrating? And who are we trying to impress? Who are we trying to please? I'm not trying to be a stick in the mud. Just the opposite, actually. My question has to do with where we expect to find the most joy and where we expect to find the most blessing. You know, if we don't perceive that there would be a benefit to doing these things for God's pleasure, first and foremost, well, then that's not even going to be on our radar. We're only going to see cost. We're only going to see, oh, well, that would be a lot of work. Why would we do that? Oh, that looks like a drudgery. Well, that's something of a tell. You know, if we were playing poker, I would say, (laughs) you're bluffing or you don't have the cards. But when we're talking about how we approach holidays, whether we celebrate holidays. Personally, I have no objection if this friend of ours that Lauren and I were talking about, if she doesn't celebrate Mother's Day, it's like, okay, that's fine. I mean, it's not against the law to just skip that day. And maybe there's more intentionality for someone occasionally saying, yeah, no, no, this is not a value. Why? You know, what's the point? Maybe there is more value sometimes in saying, I am not, first and foremost, trying to go with the flow here. And maybe I need to wean myself off of going with the flow on some of these things. I don't celebrate that. I don't recognize that as a thing, as a day. But maybe this is worth thinking on more deeply than we do. What holidays we recognize and why and how. Who are we trying to please? How are we actually presenting ourselves as a living sacrifice on those days? And even when it comes to, and I've heard this for years and years, when it comes to Easter, for instance, where we're remembering the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, or when it comes to Christmas and we are remembering the immaculate conception, the virgin birth, the incarnation of God the Son, these two holidays, you'll hear people say they've become so commercialized and a lot of people get stressed out. A lot of people get depressed on these holidays. Thanksgiving too, even though Thanksgiving is supposed to be at its root about giving thanks to God, having a feast where we give thanks to God, even though on some level we know that for very many people, it becomes the stressful thing. And why is that? Because they're trying to please men. They're trying to please their families. They're trying to please their friends. They're trying to impress they don't want to embarrass themselves. They just want it to be a nice Christmas or they, they just want it to be a nice Thanksgiving. For who? And isn't it interesting that God is telling Israel in several of these verses throughout Leviticus 23, he's telling them expressly, don't do any work. Don't do any ordinary work, actually is the phrase, but don't do any work on these holy days, on these feast days, on these special days in the calendar. Don't do any work. And what is the intention? Is it to please one another? Is it to impress one another? No, it's to impress God. It's to please God. Not that we can impress God, but you know what I mean. The idea is we are conducting ourselves on these days in the way that God tells us to because we want to please him. And of course, a byproduct of that will be that we're serving one another, but we have to get the order correct. We want to not be trying to please God because we're trying to please this person first. That's out of whack. We want to be pleasing this person over here, serving them, 
Because first and foremost, we're trying to please God. We're trying to live in service to the Lord our God. But as I said, I was going to talk a little bit more about cliffhanger used books in Estes Park, Colorado. Bird and Jim, delicious food, great view of the mountains. That restaurant named after Isabella L. Bird and Mountain Jim, as he was called, famous from A Lady's Life in the Rocky Mountains, which is a very fascinating look at the Rocky Mountains region circa 1873. An English woman came to the United States, traveled overland, and really wanted to check out Estes Park. She writes about the surrounding area as well, but she talks in that book about important figures and factors and influences. She describes, she explains, she observes, she interacts. And the restaurant, first and foremost, was an interest to us because it was named after her and her guide, Mountain Jim. Rough character he was. But then she was something of a puzzling figure herself. Not a rough figure. She had very genteel manners, it would seem. She was an English woman. But the food was very good. And after our meal, we did what we like to do when we have a chance, when we have the opportunity, when somebody gives us a day (laughs) to pursue. We went out and checked a used bookstore for what they might have. You know, it's kind of like panning for gold. When you find a good used bookstore, you will find not just the latest, greatest. In fact, very seldom will you find the latest, greatest New York Times bestseller. Those are for the new bookstores and the online booksellers. And those are sitting on somebody's shelf still waiting to be read, or they've just recently read it, or they're loaning it out to a friend. No, this is the used bookstore. So these are the books that either somebody owned and then realized at a certain point, I'm never going to read that again. I'm moving. I need to pare down. I'm just going to see if I can get these offloaded. I don't want to throw them away, of course, but I'm going to see if I can just sell them on the cheap just to get them out of my way so I don't have to pack them across the country. Or sometimes you'll have people who owned books and then they pass on and their family doesn't want all of the books that belong to their dearly departed. And so they'll sell them or they'll give them to a a thrift store. Thrift stores are also really great places to find used books in our experience. But we bought 31, 31 used books and got a great deal, I think, for just under $100. And our house is full of books. It's increasingly over the years, year after year, increasingly more and more of a home library, really, truly. It feels like we do live in something of a library because in every room, just about, we try to have a bookshelf. More so in the common rooms on the main floor. But some of the works that were picked up yesterday included a either first paper copy, probably not, probably an additional copy of George Orwell's 1984. Also, The Robe in novel form. A couple of books to do with Theodore Roosevelt. Several books about Colorado's natural resources, animals and plants. 
an old from 1936 book about plants of Rocky Mountain National Park. So that was a cool find. A Colorado history, a book about Hadrian's Wall, a New Testament that has four different translations side by side as you go, which could be very useful for study. An Atlas of the North American Indian, a book about heraldry of all things, the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin, the literature of the Rocky Mountain West from 1803 to 1903, I believe it was, a book about fascism and about readings on fascism and national socialism, the poems of Wendell Berry, campaigns of the Civil War, the lessons of history by Will and Ariel Durant, some books on archaeology. We found a a wide array of books that were of interest, I suppose I should say, and just leave it at that. But we bought these books and we're talking with the people behind the counter and they even commented, they said, wow, this is a very broad range of subjects. How to play poker, Beards, The American Wilderness by John Muir, a book by Dwight D. Eisenhower, a dictionary of the Roman Empire. Wow. And I said, well, we've got a wide range of interests. We've got a wide range of kids who each have a wide range of interests. So then the gal is asking my wife, well, how many kids do you have? She says, well, we have eight. And Wow, eight children. What are the ages? Well, the oldest is almost 16. The youngest is one. Wow, it's amazing. You know, but it's, it's interesting, right? It's curious because one of the things that you find out and you learn in reading books is that for a lot of history, it's not been so unusual to have so many children. Certainly a lot of American history, large families were more common. A lot of European history, it was common to have larger families. Now, whether all of the children survived to adulthood, that's a separate question. But large families were more common in times past. And it's more of a recent phenomenon that we are so preoccupied with our careers and our hobbies that we don't think of ourselves as having time to have children and raise children and be bothered with the expense and all that. For my own perspective on this, I know that we've gotten flack over the years, especially early on in Lauren's and my marriage, for having so many children. Some people, even today, I think scratch their heads when they find out you're expecting again? Really? Wow. Seriously? But I think that having a house full of children is somewhat like having a house full of books. Not quite the same, but there are some similarities. We have a broad range of books that we just brought home from Cliffhanger Used Books. And the broad range of books have... Some overlap, they have some common themes. There's a heavy emphasis on history, for instance, and studying the natural world around us. Poisonous plants and mushrooms of North America. That's one of them. Sitting right atop readings on fascism and national socialism. (laughs) There's a little bit of overlap there. Like, hey, this is poisonous. Don't eat it. Hey, this is poisonous. Don't think that. But... Each of these books is saying something different, even if it's saying a very closely related thing. It's helping to flesh out and understand. When I say flesh out, I mean it's helping us to live more intentionally in the world as God made it, to understand where are we at 
what is this? What are our circumstances? How did we get to right now? How do we make good decisions? Get knowledge, get understanding, Proverbs tells us in the Old Testament. But each of these books gives something different. These are not totally redundant books, even if they're on similar topics and subjects. And so I think also with children, you might say, well, why have so many children? Like, isn't one enough? Aren't two enough children? You know, as long as you get a boy and a girl. And I say, each of my children, I love very, very much. I love dearly. But each of my children has a different purpose in the world. They're here for a different purpose in the world, which God knows. I trust that God knows the purpose that he has for them to be here. I have a different purpose for each one of these books that we just brought home. Now, whether that purpose is realized today or in five years or in 30 years, that's a secondary concern to me. The first thing that I think of is I pulled this book off the shelf and I saw there's a value in knowing what the author and the publisher went to the trouble to write down in it or put in the way of pictures in it. There's a value that I can see in knowing what is in this book based on looking at the title and the subtitle and reading the back cover and skimming through the pages. There's a value I can see in knowing what the author of this book knew and organized and articulated. I want to know more about Hadrian's Wall and what kind of an influence that had, what the history is and what kind of an influence that had on the peoples of the British Isles from prehistoric times to 1688. I want to understand how the peoples of the British Isles, their history contributed to the United States of America coming to be as it is, and how that in turn finds expression in the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin and the Atlas of the North American Indian, written by Carl Waldman and Molly Brown, neither of which sound like Native American names. So this is an Atlas of the North American Indian produced by Europeans, Americans, presumably, possibly Brits, but probably Americans. We picked up Mexico Archeologico, which is, if you can guess, a book about archaeology in Mexico. But the book is entirely in Spanish. And the pictures, you don't need to be able to read Spanish to be able to understand the pictures. But my kids are taking Spanish. Our kids are taking Spanish lessons. And I thought, you know, if they had this to read through and to practice and test themselves, there could be several benefits. And so we brought it home. And if they read it later today or if they read it next year when Spanish classes pick it back up again, they're just about to have their final, not this coming Monday, but the Monday after. If they don't pick this book up until next school year when they take Spanish lessons again, that's fine. But it'll be here. And we got while the getting was good. And I think so also with having children. You know, my wife just recently told me that she is considered to be in advanced maternal age. Only just, only just, but nevertheless, we probably are nearing the end of childbearing years. Certainly we're closer than when we first got married and she was 19 and I was 20. And so there's a certain sense in which 
like with books, also with having children. We say we should get while the getting's good. <laughs> you know, what do we think? We're going to live forever. I mean, we're not getting any younger, neither one of us. I look at my wife yesterday as we're pulling up to the bookstore after having this delicious meal. She had a salad with grilled chicken and balsamic, white balsamic vinegar. I had a bison burger, which was phenomenal. It was really, really filling and delicious bison burger from Bird and Jim. But we were pulling up to the parking spot at the used bookstore. And I look over at my wife and I see she's got these very elegant silver hairs that highlight here and there in her otherwise dark hair, long, dark hair. And then I look in the mirror and I see I've got these silver hairs in my beard here and there. And then when I turn my head, I see a little bit of silver here and there starting to crop up on the sides of my head. And I think neither of us are getting any younger. And I don't see us regretting having any of these children. Not a one of them. I don't understand the people who say, well, I don't want to have any. I don't understand the people who say, yeah, we had our boy and our girl, and I think we'll stop. And I'm not trying to judge those people, but by golly, we've spent most of our marriage being judged by such people and by people who say, well, that's the norm. What are you guys doing? Why are you, why are you doing something different? Why do you have to be different? And I'm not trying to say, all right, back at you. But, <laughs> uh, you know, I <clears throat> once you get my wheels turning about why are we doing this, I have to be honest. Well, what's the alternative? One alternative would have been that we just weren't able to have children. And we've known plenty of couples, friends, and family who weren't able to have children. And that could have been us. I don't know why. It was the good Lord's providential, sovereign purpose that that is not something we struggle with at all. We are very uh, able to have children. We have to try not to. You know, it's like the difference between Southern Ohio and Eastern Montana. Southern Ohio, where Lauren was born and raised. Eastern Montana, where I was born and raised. When it comes to trees in Eastern Montana, you have to really be intentional. If you want trees to grow, you're going to have to really take care of them and try and try and try and just keep at it. Or, or they're not going to make it. They're not going to grow. And in Southern Ohio, if you want trees to not grow, you're going to have to really uh, keep things mowed down. You're going to have to really try to not grow trees. And it's kind of like that with our fertility. We are, we are very able to have children when, by God's grace, uh, we do have children. I say, I look at the demographics. I look at the statistical concerns and a lot of the developed world right now is wringing its hands over aging populations and an upside down pyramid. More and more retirees taken care of, supported by fewer and fewer young people entering into the workforce. And I look at that and I think social security is not going to be there when I'm old enough to retire. I, I don't see nursing homes being able to stay sufficiently staffed unless robots do all the work. But even there, you know, there's a lot of assumptions as to the capabilities of robots 
being scalable, you know, robots being affordable, but also who's going to make these robots if we're already having demographic problems just right now. These folks had better build their caretaking robots before they retire. You know, maybe that's a thing that people who didn't have more than one or two kids, if they had any, maybe that's something they should do instead of putting money in the stock market or banking on social security. But advanced maternal age, pregnancy, some of the risks associated as women get older and have pregnancy, premature birth, preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, birth defects. Those are some of the risks. Some of how you can manage those risks, regular visits and testing, prenatal vitamins, diet and exercise, steady weight gain. So you don't want to just eat and eat and eat and eat and eat and eat and gain weight rapidly. No, just gradually, just a little bit throughout the day, especially if nausea is an issue. And yet I look at this and I say, well, maybe, maybe nine is all we have. But then I said that when we found out we were pregnant with six, seven, eight. Advanced maternal age fertility, that might be a limiting factor. Women have a lower supply of eggs, or uh, in some cases, women are more likely to have eggs that are compromised in some way. I don't know quite the best way to put it, but birth defects, as we say, developmental disabilities, genetic mutations, genetic conditions are more likely the older a woman is when she gets pregnant and has a baby. It typically takes longer to conceive and there's a higher risk of miscarriage on average, but then you can mitigate those challenges as well. Preconception checkups, managing any kind of underlying health problems you might have, which we've worked on. That's the biggest reason we moved to Colorado in the first place, to be honest with you. Tracking ovulation is another thing. And I think there it's important to realize natural family planning has to do with watching cycles, which we do. We have uh, real concerns. We've never used birth control pills because we had very real concerns about the negative health effects of the same. I think that's where a lot of women do have trouble conceiving is they are on the birth control pill in their teenage years and in their early 20s so they can not get pregnant married or not. And then when they decide that they want to get pregnant, they stop taking birth control pills, but there is still a lingering long-term effect on their fertility from having taken those birth control pills as long as they did. I think diet, uh, poor diet is also a problem for a lot of women and that catches up with them later in life. And we're not even talking all that later in life, really. I, I don't think of either my wife or I as old by any means, advanced maternal age, what? Geriatric pregnancy? 35 is when you start saying this woman is a geriatric when she gets pregnant? Ah, come on. No way. No way. But let's do move on. We'll talk about more of these kinds of issues when here later in the episode, we get into a look at eugenics. But first, I've got a couple of current events items. I want to share with you and discuss. First off, let's touch on the tragic story of Jordan Neely. Jordan Neely was just recently killed. 
after a violent altercation on a subway train in New York City, where he was threatening passengers. And a Marine Corps veteran put him in a chokehold, and he died. By the time first responders arrived, he had expired, he had passed away, and they were unable to revive him. And some on the left, actually quite a few on the left, are saying this was murder. As in, for the white Marine Corps veteran to put this black man in a chokehold and for him to die is murder. Now, never mind that passengers on the train said he was threatening violence. Never mind that there was a violent altercation and this man had a long history of threatening death, harassing women. He had 40, 40 arrests. There was an outstanding warrant for felony assault. He was screaming obscenities. And the big question is, is this racism? Is this murder? And my consistent position in situations like this over the years, ever since I started blogging and podcasting, my consistent position has been due process is needed. Just because you have a short video clip from somebody's cell phone where they took it out and they were recording, that doesn't mean you understand what happened, what was happening before they started recording. Also, what was happening before the clip that the media will play for you again and again and again. We should learn from the situation with George Floyd. I don't believe that the left is willing to learn from the situation with George Floyd. They made up their minds the instant the headlines broke in that case. They had already convicted the police officers involved and the whole city of Minneapolis and all of law enforcement across the country and all of the white people in America and all of the history of the United States of America. They had already convicted even before they saw that first headline with regards to George Floyd. So also with Jordan Neely. We know, or it is reported, that the e-stop was hit on the train. The emergency button notifying the train crew was used. Authorities were notified. And as Isaiah L. Carter points out in his tweet May 3rd, it still takes time for law enforcement to get there. And also, oh, by the way, when a guy has a long history of mental illness and criminal activity sufficient to have 40 arrests and an outstanding warrant for felony assault and harassing women at a certain point, you roll the dice again and again and again and again and again. And what happened to Jordan Neely is what happens whether you are black or white or whatever color you are, because the behavior you're engaging with is going to find the right circumstances, the right combination of factors. And whose fault is that? Why is that society's fault? Why is that the Marine Corps veteran's fault? Because he put this guy in a chokehold. How many stories have we seen out of New York City of innocent people being thrown onto the tracks of an oncoming train and killed because some homeless person with mental illness or a drug problem who was known to authorities had a long, long rap sheet just decided to carry out a random act of violence. And then people act shocked. Why wasn't something done? In this case, something was done by 
a Marine Corps veteran who happened to be on the same train and was doing what he was trained to do, which is to protect the innocent. Did he have some special vendetta against this guy? We don't know. That'll come out if this goes to trial, if he's charged with murder, which to my knowledge, he hasn't been yet. The authorities in New York City are still weighing whether to charge him, but the left will demand that he be charged. In fact, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has already decided this is murder. He was lynched. Jabari Brisport also says Jordan Neely was lynched. He had no food, no water, no safe place to rest. He had the audacity to publicly yell about that massive injustice, so they killed him. Now, that's not accurate. Or if it is accurate, then you shouldn't have any concerns about due process and this going to the authorities for them to weigh the evidence. But I don't believe for a moment that this would even be on our radar for longer than 30 seconds if the Marine Corps veteran were a black man and the homeless man shouting threats were a white man. And so the thing we have to take care and be on guard for is racism, not just in the form of shrugging if a young black man who was known to perform Michael Jackson dance routines on the subway, out in public, not just known for criminality, but also known for being something of a street performer. We shouldn't just be on guard for racism of the kind that would say, yeah, so what? Another young black man dead. No, it's tragic. It's absolutely tragic. But we also have to be on guard against the racism that would assume malicious intent, that would assume racism on the part of this young white man. Why would we jump to the conclusion? Should we jump to the conclusion that just because somebody is black or white, they're either guilty or innocent, it's prejudice either way. At a certain point, you have to say, whoa, ho, 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 wait a second. Do we know nearly enough to be making the claims that we're making? And I know, I know for years I've been met with hostility from high school friends, former high school friends. We stopped being friends so much when they become com- they became completely unreasonable and absolutely irate at my calling for due process and saying, wait, wait a second, let's not jump to the conclusion that this is motivated by racism. And wait a second, now you're changing the subject to America being systemically racist. You're promoting CRT. Wait a second, that's not true. Let's debate it. And it's this moving target I have found when trying to discuss this with certain friends and certain family members over the years. You start talking about an individual situation and then they want to scale it up and make it macro. And then you start talking with them about the macro because they took it there, started making macro claims about systemic racism. And then all of a sudden they want to switch it to, well, I personally have observed racism in this country. You're denying that racism exists or that it's a problem. No, I'm not. I am questioning whether it is actually systemic, whether it is the problem that you say that it is at scale, that this is baked into the laws as they're written and enforced and interpreted. But then all of a sudden, ah, now you're denying my painful experience with racism or the lived experience of my friends or family. Edward Teach over at Not The Bee posted up just yesterday, did the Marine Corps just dox the Marine who put the violent homeless man in a chokehold? Daniel J. Penny named by the Marine Corps as the man involved in Monday's incident. From the Daily Mail article, the former 
Marine who put homeless man Jordan Neely in a fatal chokehold on the NYC subway has been formally identified as Daniel J. Penny. A Marine Corps spokesman confirmed Penny's identity to DailyMail.com. The motto of the U.S. Marines, Semper Fi literally means always faithful, did they just betray one of their own and throw him to the mob? Pretty sure the Marines broke one of their own codes, giving him away. The New York Times picked up the story. On May 1st, Daniel Penny, a 24-year-old veteran of the Marine Corps, choked Jordan Neely 30 to death on a New York City subway train. Penny has not been charged in Neely's death, and it is unclear if he will be. Here's what we know so far about the case. Why this is significant is when AOC and others on the left are accusing this man of murder, this young man, and then you find out his name, and then people do some sleuthing and they find out his address, what do you think is going to happen? A very, very similar thing to what almost happened in To Kill a Mockingbird when Tom Robinson was accused of raping a white woman, even though he was at the jail. What happened in To Kill a Mockingbird? Up drove an angry mob of middle-aged white men with guns to do quote-unquote justice. And thankfully, in that story, we had Atticus Finch seated outside the cell door reading a book to stand between them and mob justice. But the big question is, with this presidential administration in power promoting social justice, critical race theory, with Biden appointees heading up the Department of Defense and, yes, also the Department of Justice, is there the possibility that the young man in question will be used as a prop by the left at the very topmost levels to agitate so that they can win re-election in 2024? I wouldn't put it past them because they just did it again and again and again over the past several years in case after case. Will they do it again? I think they are doing it again right now. Moving on, Zach Jewell over at the Daily Wire published a piece also yesterday. Man charged with hate crime after allegedly shooting two strangers execution style because they were white. Again, the word here is allegedly, but a black man in Tulsa, Oklahoma was charged with murdering two white men in what appeared to be execution style slayings last month. And authorities are calling it a racially motivated hit crime. Carlton Guilford, a homeless man, allegedly shot two men in the back of the head at two separate locations on April 18th, according to the Tulsa Police Department, Fox News reported. London Hathcock, 35, was shot around 9.40 a.m. at the Rudisil Library, and James McDaniel, 55, was shot at a Quick Trip convenience store. Tulsa County District Attorney Steve Kunzweiler said that evidence suggests Guilford shot both men because they were white, and he has been charged with a hate crime for his alleged killings. Quote, the allegation in this charge is that race or color played a role in these shootings, Kunzweiler told Newsweek. Quote, based upon the investigation, we have reason to believe that race played a role in the homicides. That evidence will be presented in front of a jury and judge. Mr. Guilford has the presumption of innocence until proven guilty by a judge or jury. End quote. This is as it should be. Allow due process to run its course. If he really did murder two men, first of all, then the evidence should bear that out. And if he did it because they were white men, then the evidence should bear that out. 
but even just reading this much. Notice how different the way of framing these situations is from the Jordan Neely case. Notice how different the way we are presented with the facts of the case reads. It should be an equal application of the laws in both cases, but will the left be as upset about racism in the case of alleged racially motivated slayings of two white men in Oklahoma as they are a chokehold that resulted in the death of a homeless black man in New York City? Will they be as upset? And is there even anything like the circumstances in the New York City case here in Oklahoma? Nothing presented, nothing up front. There's nothing about these two white men having been shouting and cursing and threatening and all the rest right before this black man executed them. There's nothing to that effect. Maybe that comes out in court as well. But if they were just sitting there minding their own business at the library, at the convenience store, and their only provocation was that they were white men, that is what the left should be focused on if they want to purge racism. The story out of New York City isn't even remotely like this. But the way that the left jumps to the race baiting and claiming racism and calling what happened in New York City a lynching, the way that the left jumps to that and bangs that drum actually provokes reprisals from people of color who then say, oh, well, we're being targeted. We're being murdered. You can't be a black man in America. So I'm going to fight that war. It's a race war that the left seems to want. And I think the reason they want a race war is because they want revolution more broadly. And we need to be very careful to not play into that by jumping to conclusions any way around. The evidence should bear out what happened. And if guilt as charged can't be proven beyond a reasonable doubt, that's the standard. And you say, okay, we're going to presume that you are innocent because we can't prove that you are guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. That is how our justice system is supposed to work. Not, we know that a black man is dead and a white man killed him, and therefore we assume racism. And even if the white man's not guilty, well, we're thinking systemically. That's an evil thing. That is not biblical justice. That is not. We can't go down that road. For one last topic, though, let's talk about eugenics. <laughs> let's talk about this idea that was very popular in the 19th century, that you could solve the problems of society and of the human race, like mental illness, like criminality, like birth defects and health problems and poverty and the rest, by selective breeding, by controlling which human beings could breed and which couldn't. I'm going to play a clip for you. This will be the only cut in this episode of a certain Dr. Pete. He's a veterinarian. By his accent, I deduce that he is South African. But his YouTube video talking about the spay and neuter controversy and the pros and cons of neutering your pet, I'll play just a little bit from for you before we talk about what I think the eugenics movement of the 19th century and the 20th century 
has morphed into in our day. It'll make more sense perhaps in a minute, but I'll play the clip and then I'll explain. Now let's first start with the pros of nurturing your pet. There's no denial that there's a huge overpopulation problem with pets all around the world, which often results in animals needing to be put down when shelters are flooded. Multiple studies have found that sexually intact dogs and cats are more likely to be given up to humane organizations than those who are neutered. This results in an estimated 1.5 million shelter animals being euthanized in the US alone every year, according to the ASPCA. The two main concerns here are that the majority of the surrendered animals are from unwanted litters and should sexually intact dogs be adopted, they may reproduce and repopulate those shelters again. This is mostly at fault of irresponsible pet owners who do not have a sound knowledge of animal reproduction. Thus, nurturing unowned animals is an obvious attempt to maintain proper pet population control. Behavioral problems, also known as sexually dimorphic behaviors, is one of the most common reasons why pets are surrendered. These include things like roaming, mounting, and urine spraying. Now, gonadotectomy, which is the removal of the testes or the ovaries, have been correlated with a decrease in the sexually dimorphic behaviors due to the decrease in the gonadal steroid hormone. Sexual behaviors in male cats, such as roaming, fighting, and urine spraying, for example, makes them extremely undesirable and often unsafe to be kept as household pets. Castration is therefore beneficial to remove these behaviors and make them more tolerant for pet owners. One large-scale study of over 1,800 dogs also revealed a decrease in separation anxiety and submissive urination associated with gonadotectomy performed before dogs were five months of age. Mammary gland tumors are the most common tumors of female dogs and third most common tumors of female cats. They are extremely malignant, which means they can easily spread to other organs, especially the lungs, which often results in the animal being put down upon diagnosis. Maintenance of a sexually intact status is a major risk factor for the development of mammary gland tumors, of which the risk increases substantially with age. Okay, so there's a longer video. You can watch the full video if you want, if you're really curious about the pros and cons more extensively to spaying and neutering your pets. But let me just say briefly, I grew up with Bob Barker on The Price is Right, and he always closed every show saying, remember to spay and neuter your pets. And the reason given was that everybody knows there is an overpopulation problem with pets, pet animals, dogs and cats in particular. And so the way to solve this problem of overpopulation is to spay and neuter your pets. That was the end of every episode for years and years and years and years. And you might think to yourself, well, that's just a throwaway last minute thing. But Drew Carey, he took over the show after Bob Barker, and he also has ended every episode, remember, to spay and neuter your pets. And so this kind of association in my mind with a midday game show and the price is right <laughs> being to spay and neuter your pets to cure the problem of overpopulation leads me to a conclusion that you may agree with, you may disagree with, you may just totally dismiss it. But based on my study of Edward Bernays, 
and eugenics, Edward Bernays being the double first nephew of Sigmund Freud and the inventor of public relations and modern advertising as we know it, how political campaigns are conducted, how product advertising is conducted. Edward Bernays wrote the book on propaganda and explicitly advocated for the power of the soft sell, the power of suggestion rather than trying to reason with people and persuade them. Edward Bernays believed and argued and influenced a lot of people, a lot of very wealthy and powerful people, that the majority of people can't reason properly. They don't know what's in their best interest. And in our day, this takes the form of nudge theory, but it's really the same thing. Whatever you want to call it, it's just rebranding. It's just another variation on this idea of public relations and the power of the soft sell. If one term gets worn out, we'll just rebrand and call it something else. And people won't make the connection, most of them. But I think that The Price is Right, ending with spay and neuter your pets, very subtly inserted the idea that if overpopulation of people is a problem, which we are also told explicitly again and again by the news media, that that was a concern due to problems of deforestation and habitat loss for animals and climate change. If overpopulation of people is a problem, well, then what do you do with people? You spay and neuter people. And then it just so happens that a lot of drug commercials play on TV, encouraging men on the one hand to take drugs to enhance their uh, libido, but also at the same time, a lot of commercials promote women either taking birth control pills or some other form of birth control or uh, getting abortions. And very subtly, sometimes not so subtly, but very subtly, we have the idea implanted, fertilized and implanted, that we as human beings should have ourselves and one another rendered inoperable when it comes to reproduction because we're overpopulating. And now just think with me for a moment about eugenics and scientific racism. It is according to the webpage at genome.gov for the NIH, National Human Genome Research Institute. We have eugenics and scientific racism fact sheet. So these are facts about eugenics, not conjecture, not conspiracy theory, not reading between the lines. This is a fact sheet from genome.gov. The big picture, they write in some of these bullet points I'll share with you. The rest you'll have to go and read for yourself if you want to know more. Eugenics is the scientifically inaccurate theory that humans can be improved through selective breeding of populations. Eugenicists believed in a prejudiced and incorrect understanding of Mendelian genetics that claimed abstract human qualities, e.g. intelligence and social behaviors, were inherited in a simple fashion. Similarly, they believed complex diseases and disorders were solely the outcome of genetic inheritance. The implementation of eugenics practices has caused widespread harm, particularly to populations that are being marginalized. Eugenics is not a fringe movement. Can I say that again? Eugenics is not a fringe movement. Starting in the late 1800s, leaders and intellectuals worldwide perpetuated eugenic beliefs 
and policies based on common racist and xenophobic attitudes. Many of these beliefs and policies still exist in the United States. The genomics communities continue to work to scientifically debunk eugenic myths and combat modern-day manifestations of eugenics and scientific racism, particularly as they affect people of color, people with disabilities, and LGBTQ plus individuals. Just a little more here. Eugenics is the scientifically erroneous and immoral theory of racial improvement and planned breeding, which gained popularity during the early 20th century. Eugenicists worldwide, worldwide, believed that they could perfect human beings and eliminate so-called social ills through genetics and heredity. They believed the use of methods such as involuntary sterilization, so there we have the Bob Barker treatment, except people being treated like animals, segregation and social exclusion would rid society of individuals deemed by them to be unfit. Now, what is scientific racism? Uh, Scientific racism, according to genome.gov, is an ideology that appropriates the methods and legitimacy of science to argue for the superiority of white Europeans and the inferiority of non-white people whose social and economic status have been historically marginalized. Like eugenics, scientific racism grew out of the misappropriation of revolutionary advances in medicine, anatomy, and statistics during the 18th and 19th centuries, Charles Darwin's theory of evolution through the mechanism of natural selection, Gregor Mendel's laws of inheritance, eugenic theories, and scientific racism drew support from contemporary xenophobia, anti-Semitism, sexism, colonialism, and imperialism, as well as justifications of slavery, particularly in the United States. How did eugenics begin? Francis Galton, an English statistician, demographer, and ethnologist, and cousin of Charles Darwin, it should be noted, coined the term eugenics in 1883. Galton defined eugenics as, quote, the study of agencies under social control that may improve or impair the racial qualities of future generations, either physically or mentally, end quote. Galton claimed that health and disease, as well as social and intellectual characteristics, were based upon heredity and the concept of race. During the 1870s and 1880s, discussions of human improvement and the ideology of scientific racism became increasingly common. So-called experts determined individuals and groups of people to be either superior or inferior They believed biological and behavioral characteristics were fixed and unchangeable and placed individuals, populations, and nations inside of that hierarchy. Now, I don't have time to read the rest of this to you, for you. I trust you can read it for yourself. It's very much worth reading. Again, not some fringe website, not somebody you regard as a conspiracy theorist, not my imagination. This is from National Human Genome Research Institute. Now, you might say, oh, but Garrett, you know, what was that about? You thinking that, what, our government is involved in promoting eugenics ideas? It's our government that's saying it's immoral, it's wrong, it's evil. Ah, but wait, right? But wait. Just like diseases can mutate and become resistant to various treatment methods, so also bad ideas like eugenics can mutate. And I think that's what happens. I think that's what has happened. I think that's what is happening. I think a lot of those ideas that, as this says, were worldwide and held by not just fringe people, but very wealthy people, very powerful people, very influential people, very serious people. I think these ideas don't just go away because we were all 
exposed to horrifying images of Nazi atrocities in concentration camps. I think that these ideas of purifying the race and cleansing the race from the quote-unquote germplasm of society, I think these ideas don't just go away. I think that you will always have people who think like this. And part of the reason why I say that is this is not actually an idea that has only existed in the modern era. Eugenics, as we call it, is only a couple hundred years old. But if I go over to Wikipedia, their article for eugenics, origin and development section, I read this. Types of eugenic practices have existed for millennia. Some indigenous peoples of Brazil are known to have practiced infanticide against children born with physical abnormalities since pre-colonial times. In ancient Greece, the philosopher Plato suggested Plato suggested selective mating to produce a guardian class. In Sparta, every Spartan child was inspected by the Council of Elders, the Gerosia, which determined if the child was fit to live or not. The geographer Strabo states that the Samnites would take 10 virgin women and 10 young men who were considered to be the best representation of their sex and mate them. Following this, the best women would be given to the best male, then the second best women to the second best male. It is possible that the best men and women were chosen based on athletic capabilities. And oh ho ho, might we potentially start looking at high school and college sports and professional sports in something of a new light if we realize that that has been a way of deciding who reproduces for quite some time and maybe it still is and maybe this is somewhat like horse breeding to a lot of very wealthy and powerful people who want to engineer society it is possible that the best men and women were chosen based on athletic capabilities this would continue until all 20 people had been assigned to one another. If the people involved dishonored themselves, they were removed and forcefully separated from their partner. In the early years of the Roman Republic, a Roman father was obliged by law to immediately kill his child if they were, quote, dreadfully deformed, end quote. According to Tacitus, a Roman of the imperial period, the Germanic tribes of his day killed any member of their community they deemed cowardly, unwarlike, or stained with abominable vices, usually by drowning them in swamps. Modern historians, however, see Tacitus' ethnographic writing as unreliable in such details. The point is, these are very old ideas that can morph. Just like I said, with regards to what has fallen out of favor in the mainstream in the last century since the end of World War II, the liberation of concentration camps, the discovery of mass graves and gas chambers and furnaces for people, mass cremation of people. Eugenics as a term has fallen out of favor, but has the idea of deciding who breeds and who doesn't, has that idea gone away? And how can we know? I'll leave you with this thought. And I I have to run. We've got church this morning and I need to go get ready for church and take my family. But I'll leave you with this thought. Is it just possible that everything I played in the clip from the South African vet who is explaining the pros of spaying and neutering dogs and cats. Is it possible just maybe that that kind of thinking about people is expressing itself in the transgender push, the push for homosexuality? 
we're going to convince people that it's their own idea. You know, we're, we're, we don't want to round people up and you know starve them to death and gas them and incinerate them and bury them in mass graves anymore. We don't want to do that anymore. But but maybe just maybe we can talk them into it like it's their own idea, particularly the ones that are unfit to reproduce as we see it. And then only the best in breed will reproduce. And we'll shrink Earth's population thereby because overpopulation is a concern. And if we're already just regarding people as animals anyways, well, then why wouldn't you do, you know, if you're saying it must be, it's urgent that we do it with regards to dogs and cats. Well, then so also with people, only all the more rather than less if people are a much bigger impact on the environment and on habitat loss, as they say, or on climate change as is being claimed. If we can tell them that they are getting gender reassignment surgery, well, maybe we can talk them into voluntarily having themselves spayed and neutered. And then we solve all kinds of problems, all the same kinds of problems that you supposedly mitigate when you spay and neuter dogs and cats that you don't want to breed. It's a thought. It makes a lot of sense to me. It doesn't mean I'm going to go so far out on that limb that I fall (laughs) it breaks under me and I fall. And it doesn't mean you have to agree with me, but it makes a lot of sense. And I do wonder, I just, just chew on this. I wonder if the world stands and you give these things a century to develop and continue on as they are right now without interruption, without calls to repentance being heeded, God doing a work to change hearts and minds so that we actually embrace again the dominion mandate and that we are made in God's image. We're not just animals. You can't just treat one another like you would unwanted stray dogs and cats and livestock. If we return to the dominion mandate, great. But if we don't, and it continues on for a century, will three generations, four generations from now, our descendants look back on this time and say, oh my word, how could people not see what was taking shape, what was unfolding before their eyes. G.K. Chesterton was very critical of eugenics before and after it came out what the Nazis were doing in the concentration camps. He was very critical, as he should have been. And maybe I follow in his footsteps here and say we should be very critical of this transgender movement and LGBTQ plus normalization but that's all the time I've got for this episode. I really do have to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Uh...